We think twice about consumer insights based on speculation. We bust buzzwords and unlock insights from the latest academic papers and thought pieces. If you want to learn about the world around you whilst listening to elevator jazz music, then this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome to the first Think Twice episode of the year. Whoop, whoop, whoop. It kind of feels a bit weird to whoop for 2021 or the beginning of it, <laughs> but there we go. Um, today we'll be discussing whether we live in a time of cultural fragmentation with so many media products and platforms competing for our attention like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. I'm not going to list them all, um, but content has been more is more mass than ever before, but we're all watching different things. So we're going to be discussing whether monoculture is dead. And we also want to find out how fandoms exist online now and what role brands can play in that. Today we are so lucky to be speaking to a strategist we really admire and follow religiously on all social media for her marketing strategy wisdom on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's Zoe Skaman, of course, founder of Full Service Strategy Studio Bodacious, as well as being an expert in fandom and entertainment. So perfect for this episode. Hi Zoe, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Um, We're really excited to get into this, but before we go into the questions, um, we're just going to discuss our favourite TV shows, um, a bit about that monoculture or linear TV that used to exist. So, like, the first thing that came into my head is when I was like seven till 16 I used to sit down religiously at like 7 p.m and watch EastEnders every night oh my god yes it was such a well I say it's a family thing but there was quite you know hard subject matters there it doesn't really like exist anymore in a way sometimes I don't think it does in terms of like a certain time but there are programs that a lot of people watch yeah you mean like a program that everybody like you know that everyone would have watched something like what maybe Eurovision used to be or like yeah, for sure I remember bit, uh, like when I was younger watching the X Factor every Saturday night religiously and I knew that everyone was all my friends were doing the same thing and it was just something to connect with them about at school or like on the weekends afterwards and I'd even go as far to say as um Love Island season two and three please don't judge me um was the last time I really remember it being a subject matter that everybody spoke about like I'd go to work the next day and people would discuss the issues between the couples as general just you know um relationship issues relating it back to you know their lives etc and you'd hear people's opinions on things and it was really an interesting way of seeing what people's opinions were yeah for sure like a bit like big brother as well I think oh those yeah two, like <laughs> ones that you can really discuss yeah for sure I don't know if that exists anymore, you know, like a program that um, everybody watches and is part of, you know, the main mainstream culture. Mm, I think Game of Thrones is kind of one that comes to my mind. (laughs) I know you hate Game of Thrones. I absolutely hate it. I got it's like it's just everything I hate in a program, like just the fantasy aspect aspect of it. The fact it's just completely not real like I love fantasy and I, and I know there's a, there's yeah. actually another like subculture of people who hates um Game of Thrones I don't like hate it to the point where I'm posting about it but I'm part I'm kind of part of the other culture if that makes sense but you have to admit like the finale did sort of like unite the world I don't know I if I maybe, I'm Sorry. like existing in this subculture of <laughs> thinking that it united the world when it didn't but yeah that so did you watch it did you watch Game of Thrones I did I actually love Game of Thrones I love fantasy um so I'm, I'm super into that world but I do think there are still shows that do that and maybe it's because you know obviously we're in our 
Twitter bubbles or social media bubbles or something like that. But there's definitely been um, shows such as like Tiger King, Emily in Paris, yeah, Bridgerton. And it's mostly shows that we love to hate, you know, at the same time that we're all kind of, some people are saying, I love it, it's brilliant. I love the vacuousness and how ridiculous it is that she's trying to run around Paris in high heels and cobbled streets and hasn't broken her ankle <laughs> yes. yet. You know, and other people are just like, um, this is horrific. Why am I still on episode four? And now I want to watch episode five and it's pulled me in and I don't know why. So I, I still think there are shows that do that, which have kind of mass appeal that we're all tuning into. But it's almost like, you know, that that kind of bubbles up, people start watching it and then you kind of have to watch it because you don't want to feel left out. Yeah, yeah, I totally sure. agree. Do you think the fact that they release all the episodes now um, at one time on streaming mm. services has affected that at all? Because, you know, you have to wait. I think, it, you know, that can definitely help if you want to binge it. But then also look at The Undoing recently, which was one episode yes. at a time. And everybody went nuts for that as well. So I think it's yeah. it's different in different ways. And then you've also got, for example, WandaVision um, on Disney Plus at the moment, which is um, obviously the latest spinoff from Marvel. And that's weekly and people are loving it and kind of tuning into it religiously as well. So I think it really depends on the strength of the show and then obviously the strength of other people's recommendations on whether or not you want to tune in. But I do think there's still room for those waiting moments and those kind of like, oh my God, it's Friday night, the episode's out again, you know, this is super exciting. So I think it's it's a mixture of both. Yeah. It's such a way of bringing people together, especially at a time now where we only really have kind of digital means of communicating with people. And yeah, because we're not doing anything. Literally have nothing to talk about. There's only so many times I can mention the the long walk I went on, the same path that I do every day. And it it is just a nice way of kind of, it's a nice little segue onto real life issues. When you see them on TV, you Mm. can discuss them. For sure. It's funny that you mentioned Bridgerton as well, because I did feel guilty about watching it. I saw an article which was like, it was like the period drama we all didn't know that we needed in lockdown, but we really did. Like, it was just so like, oh, like took you to another like fantasy world. But also, you know, it's like a little bit silly and indulgent. I also love the fact though. Yeah, the, the the discussions about race because obviously uh, the queen was a black woman, so that was that those yeah. were conversations that were had, and it was a real disseminator of of culture. Because if we're talking about that, it will hopefully move our world a bit, you know, far in advance, which is what we need, which is what I really like about entertainment as well. Yeah, it gives us something to gather around, and I think it's it's very similar to kind of meme culture, um, but it does move yeah. really really quickly, and and you're wanting to jump on the bandwagon and you know to binge Emily in Paris for example you know over 24 hours in order to kind of keep up because you might have missed you know some of the conversations and now meme culture you know used to last for two or three weeks for example and now we're lucky if it lasts 24 hours or even a couple of hours and I think we've seen that recently with the Bernie meme Um, yeah obviously with Bernie with his gloves and you know sat kind of tucked up in a very you know Vermont-esque fashion on his little folding chair and that just went nuts and it went nuts because people wanted to share stuff and they wanted to feel a sense of collectiveness and everyone was laughing over the same thing and seeing how crazy we could make this meme but you know 24 hours later if you post it again it's not so funny so the speed at which things are moving in terms of that meme culture is also something that we need to be mindful of when it comes to you know monoculture and collectivism and that kind of stuff as well is that we all have to go all in for 24 hours and then after those 24 hours you're not really relevant anymore if you're still talking about that subject there's something new that you need to gather around for sure oh yeah no it's so true and it makes brands lives a little bit harder doesn't it to kind of have to replicate that culture that we've all become accustomed to 
Yeah, absolutely. And the speed is just insane. I mean, you've got to move really, really quickly. You know, if a brand came out in two days time with, you know, a Bernie related merch drop or something, you'd just be like, okay, boomer, that's so uncool. You clearly weren't on it at the time. So that stuff is, is something that we need to be definitely wary of too. So first question, in the past, entertainment was used to connect as everyone watched the same things the same, at the same time as we've, as we've discussed previously. So how can we get people to bond over popular culture like they did before and when maybe popular culture is ceasing to exist and becoming, as we've said, monoculture? I think it just goes back to the question of why do we feel that everybody needs to connect over the same thing in a mass way? Um, and what's the kind of richness of that connection. So I think it's fun, as I mentioned, when people are bonding en masse over Bernie or Bridgerton or something like that. But those moments are fun because they are infrequent collective moments that people are excited by, people run at them you know, for a short period of time um, and, then, and then they dissipate. And that's kind of half the interest factor and half the fascination that we have with them. But I think that idea of real connection um, over something that is a shared interest isn't going to happen on a mass culture perspective. And actually, it shouldn't need to. I think the richness comes yeah. from the small pockets of fandom communities or the small pockets of interest groups, for example, that rally around something and they go so much deeper. So they're the ones that are writing the fan fiction. They're the ones that are making up different endings to their favorite stories. You know, they're the ones that are... Um, going deep into you know the psyches of the characters and really digging into their motivations behind why they did what they did and I think for me that form of connection is only getting better and richer and more frequent but they're in pockets we we don't see it so much but I really don't think that's a it's a bad thing Um, I think you can have that and still sprinkle in that kind of collective imagination piece on an infrequent basis as I mentioned but I, I don't think we need to reconnect over Love Island or Big Brother or stuff like that necessarily anymore because we have all of these really rich um, rabbit holes that we can go down on a regular basis depending on what we're interested in, be it anime, um, you know, be it um, supernatural in terms of the TV show, um, you know, be it the kind of music behind Bridgerton if you really want to dive deep into that, you know, be it something to do with World of Warcraft, for example, which is definitely not a niche necessarily anymore. Um, but I think that for me is, is where it gets really exciting. Well, that's really interesting, actually, especially when um, you talk about gaming, because obviously, um, you know, gaming, there's not really like a, there's a release date and obviously there's a hype, but kind of stuff like COD, stuff like Fortnite, it just kind of continues. So how do you think gaming companies should maybe hype that up in, 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 in pockets like they do in TV and film, if that makes sense? Is that something that they can do through our marketing? Um, absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, the thing with these new games, um, which are basically continuous worlds, you know, Fortnite, for example, you know, you mentioned COD, Overwatch, PUBG, um, all of those kind of ones as well, is they're continuous worlds, but that doesn't mean that they stop um, in terms of, you know, new ideas that are coming out, new character releases, new skins, new emotes, new adventures. Um, you know, new challenges, for example. That's why you have, you know, the Fortnite seasons, for example, that, you know, one season ends and another one begins. Um, You know, they've just done a massive deal with uh, FIFA to release basically brand new skins, which are representative of all of the different teams' uniforms. So there's always that constant stream of of new news that people get excited by. And it's, you know, there's a new adventure that you can go on with your Fortnite crew, for example. Um, There's a new event that they're putting on that everyone can rally behind. There's a new emote, as I mentioned, that you can kind of add to your avatar. 
So there's always something new. And I think people, again, in pockets get excited. So if you're a football fan and you follow FIFA religiously, then this new release in terms of the skins is going to get you super excited. So that's kind of one aspect is it's just because they're they're out there doesn't mean that they're flat. There's always something new happening. And then the other thing is that they they nurture these mini communities in these niches in different platforms all over the place. So Discord, for example, is probably one of the most exciting places to be if you're a fan right now, um, especially from a gaming perspective. And there are little subgenres and little rooms um, that are set up. I say little, you know, some of them can be hundreds of thousands yeah. of people, but you know, there there can be rooms <laughs> set up for interest groups. So, you know, if there's a particular challenge or adventure that you're really into at the moment with Fortnite, you can drop into a room and talk to other people who are doing exactly the same thing. Um, you know, if there are, you know, people, for example, in PUBG who are super into the history and the lore that is actually part of building that universe, then you can pop into a Discord room and you can constantly dig into the mysteries um, and the investigations behind that. Because obviously PUBG now actually have their own official lore site where you can go in and, and really dive deep into that kind of stuff. So there's always something that you can get into. There's always pockets that are progressing and going deeper or going on tangents and really delving into stuff in a different way. So I think those communities yeah. are just most of the time kind of self-nurturing. But I do think that the the bigger companies behind them are constantly putting out those little Easter eggs or yeah. those little kind of carrots to kind of keep them interested and keep them going. Um, but a lot of the time, once these communities are off, then they're, you know, off to the races by themselves. They don't really need that much help. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, how um, gaming have their own platforms that they use to nurture, you know, with the Discord, with the with Twitch. I think what's really interesting as well is noting how TV shows can also stay popular for one season, for example, but not continue. I think Stranger Things, for example, uh, was a show that had a lot of nostalgia involved with it, with the 80s, etc. But as the seasons went on and they got progressively more famous and it got a bit more hyped, I don't know if it was the hype that kind of prevented it from being such a big topic of conversation. It kind of like maybe lost a bit of its magic, maybe not to the true fans, but definitely in popular culture. Is there a way that maybe that Netflix could have prevented that from happening or is it just kind of you can't predict it it's like when things go viral I think you can't predict it but I also think that you know obviously the bigger it gets that's actually a massive benefit for Netflix because what they're looking for is they're looking for big pillar shows that can you know escape people who have already got Netflix and it can actually be used as an incentive for more signups that's what they're looking for so actually you know when a show goes viral for them or a show gets super popular that everybody's talking about it and everyone's going, God, haven't you seen it? And then you've got the odd person saying, well, no, I haven't seen yeah. it. I haven't got Netflix. Maybe I should subscribe. You know, to them, that's a massive, yes. massive win. So, you know, commercially, that's what they want. Uh, so I don't necessarily think they would ever see it as a negative. Um, but I think it's also, it's a natural thing for shows as well. You know, the initial drama, magic, you know, joy of, of delving into that world, both from a kind of nostalgia perspective, but also, you know, pulling in the mystery and you've got serious ET vibes going on. That was something incredible and beautiful initially. And obviously, naturally, the more the story goes on, the more that excitement is going to dip because you've seen it now and it's going to continue. But it doesn't mean it's less enjoyable um, for fans. It just means that the initial zeitgeisty hype isn't there anymore because it's no longer new news. Yeah. But again, not a bad thing. I think with Stranger it, Things as well, there was that mystery around what the actual creature was. And the in the yes. final, we found out and we're like, eh, might not watch season two then. 
<laughs> it's not that exciting. It's weird, isn't it, that they kind of have an... In, like, they, they've tried to do group watching. What is it? Party watching on Netflix that they put out. Netflix um, party, yeah. Netflix yeah. party. Yeah, that was really interesting. It's kind of like the same um, concept as, you know, Discord or anything like that, just chatting and mm. all watching at the same time. It's weird that, though, I feel like they could maybe develop that um, or maybe that's overkill. We've got, already got Twitter and, and other social media that um, is naturally there to discuss shows like that. So maybe it is overkill. I'm they not sure. They sometimes do that on, they do that a lot on Instagram, don't they, with their separate Instagram accounts. So they always have yeah. like a Bridgerton Instagram. Or, or a live. Like, yeah. yeah, they do like a live and they answer all the questions. So they like just, behind they, the I think they've used it on social media, but yeah, they don't have like a separate platform for it. It's weird though, isn't it? Like um, with The Crown, um, <laughs> people kind of got, most people quite didn't like it of the period drama. It wasn't really for them. But when Diana came came through, like everyone was so interested. It's just, it's it's mad, isn't it? What nostalgia can do. Yeah, and, I, think, um, I think it's nostalgia. And I also think, you know, Netflix are excellent at nurturing fandoms. Um, you know, so mm, when yeah. it comes to Netflix on Twitter, for example, or even Netflix on Instagram or Facebook, I mean, you just tapped into it. They don't have, I mean, they've got one big Netflix, but really the, the richness again and the, the way that they look at their sort of content strategy, the way that they look at how they fuel the fire of fandom is they go hard on the niches. Um, so, you know, they've got Strong Black yeah. Lead, which is, you know, one of the Netflix channels, you know, that they've got so many different ones. They've got anime ones, um, you know, they've got LGBTQ focused ones, for example, and they curate the right kind of shows and they curate the right kind of voice for specifically for that platform. So for them, it's about proliferation of, of niches as opposed to trying to pull everyone back into that mass and trying to please everybody. Because actually, you know, the, the most exciting thing about Netflix is that there is literally, hopefully, something for everyone. And that's what they're catering yeah. for. And actually, the more that they fragment, the more successful they are. And obviously, they still want those big hit shows, as I said, like the Bridgertons, you know, likely Emily in Paris. And those are great, but really holding on to those subscribers is about giving them something that is relevant for them and then nurturing their feeling of belonging, if that's what they want, within a like-minded community. That's so it interesting. Is, yeah, it's so crazy how all these platforms just look so different for different people. Like if mm. I go on my Netflix, it just looks so different to like my dad's, yeah. which would be have like narcos at the front. But also <laughs> like, the way the... their thumbnails as well. You know, yeah. they adapt their thumbnails according to your uh, watching behavior. Yeah, they I thought that was incredible. All advertising. But yeah, all, all media platforms seem to be doing this. Even like TikTok yeah. with the For You page. Mm. It's just like you can be on a completely different space. I'm scared else. of that one, you know. I, I mean, I'm constantly getting just cats and then people <laughs> talking shit about their exes. That's literally my algorithm. We sound but... very lame. <laughs> cats, <laughs> exes and caravans. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean the, TikTok, the TikTok algorithm is an interesting one. I think a lot of people are scared of it, but they shouldn't be. Um, it is a very, it's a great algorithm and it works really, really well. Um, you know, from a China perspective, yeah, you know, there might be a bit of an issue on that front, but actually, you know, they, they've moved the majority of their servers into the US now. Um, so we don't have to worry okay. about that too much in terms of privacy. I think that that was really blown up um, where it really didn't need to be. And also, you know, if, you, if you're worried about your data, don't use Google, don't use Facebook, you know, anything like that, that's Definitely. way worse. Um, so I think that was kind of massively blown out of proportion. But, you know, the, the thing with TikTok, which is so fascinating, is it's not necessarily the algorithm. It's not a kind of magical thing that they've built. But what is super smart is the, the volume of data sets that they use in order to judge your, 
you know, basically interaction and engagement with each piece of content. So, you know, rather than having two or three data points that they use to then figure out what they should serve you, they've more likely got, you know, 200. And that's why it feels so, so personalized because they are watching every tiny little move that you make, like how long you linger on a screen, um, how many seconds yeah. you watch, you know, they're using machine learning to read the content of those videos to start to think about the kind of formula. So it's not just cats, maybe it's cats dancing, I don't know, that you're super interested in, but they can figure that out because they've got so many different data points that then feed the algorithm. So it's not the algorithm itself, it's what it's fed with that makes it so much stronger. I think the issues that they've had as well, it's really interesting that you say that, is obviously they started out in China and I feel like uh, the Chinese market are more comfortable with their data being used for personalized experiences, totally. whereas maybe the Western world needs to adapt to it a little bit. But they are adapting. Like um, some, A lot of the time I'll watch I'll see the comments in the videos on TikTok saying, you know, commenting on this to say on cat TikTok. That wasn't, I, I didn't do that, by the way, but I, I just naturally <laughs> sure you did Like, oh, I didn't, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting that they're kind of enjoying the algorithm for what it is and that they're going to get the content that they like. And it's, it's quite a big um, development, really, in our culture. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily China uh, or Chinese population being more comfortable with their data being used in that way, I think that we are just kidding ourselves um, that we think that we've ever had privacy. And I think that's the bonkers mm. thing is everyone's <laughs> going, oh my God, TikTok are trying to uncover where I yeah. live and who I am and what kind of person I am. It's just like, what do you think Facebook's been doing for the last decade? And I think yeah, it's just- we fed have, them the information. Totally, we, and we've got our heads in the sand. So it's not, a, it's not a comfort thing necessarily for China. I think they've just been more aware, whereas we've been living in this bubble of denial um, that oh, no, nobody's sure. tracking us and actually you know they have been the entire time we just weren't necessarily aware of it of course we I, had an I, episode on that sorry Pepper. we, we had an episode on that as well where it's just really interesting to understand like people's levels of like how they're comfortable with people tracking them like we were talking about siri listening in um and one of our guests jess Geary, was like i'd be completely fine like whatever i'm doing in the bedroom if someone's listening to me i don't mind <laughs> she's gonna shoot me when she hears this like that's i want to use said, it to but... my uh, my benefit for yeah, sure but like, then someone it's... else will be like that is my worst nightmare like I need my privacy so I am you know that documentary that was on Netflix and that revealed like the way that Google worked and and followed your data I cannot remember what it's called but it was like a it was one of those monoculture type programs because everyone told me about it social dilemma yes and everyone told me about it everyone's like you're gonna throw your phone out the window Perla like you're, you're not ever gonna want to you know go on your social media again and I watched it and I was like wait I know all of this this is my job I literally do this for a living. <laughs> I was like, I'm not shocked at this. Did you not know all of this? And they don't. And I think it's a it's a knowledge thing as well. Just people are not aware. But it's you're right. You're completely right. Like privacy doesn't exist, and you might as well use it to your advantage and make your kind of digital experience as personal, personalized, and as relevant to you as possible. Totally. And I think you know the TikTok thing was massively politicized, obviously. Um, and, you know, we're living in outrage culture. So we just got overly outraged about something that we've been arguably engaging with on other social platforms for, for decades. And because Facebook was American, we thought it was, you know, OK in terms of what they've been tracking, and what they've been doing. And because, you know, uh, TikTok was Chinese, we we're just like, God, they're evil. You know, it's a sort of secret conspiracy to take over our democracy. And it's just like, whoa, 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 guys, you know, it's, it's fucking people dancing. It's fine. <laughs> that's so so true that's a really interesting point i'll move on to um 
question too, although we've covered it slightly, but um, it's about how brands should actually adapt to fragmented fandom with the digital world and developed algorithms, as we've touched upon, always showing people anything and anything everything and anything they're interested in should we be doing the same as entertainment brands so essentially like should we recognize the shift and as entertainment brands or brands in general even shift that way also totally we should absolutely be doing that and i am a big advocate of that um pointing to basically different brands that are really leaning into it. So, you know, Peloton is one, Food52 is another, BuzzFeed, you know, is another, Nike and Adidas in many ways, um, you know, are other ones too. And I think Spotify is another one too. And I think where we need to get to is we need to stop looking at generic demographics and generic target audiences and going, right, we need to target yeah. mums between the ages of 35 and 55 because they've got the purchasing power. It's like, do you know how many different types of people are housed within that one demographic bracket? I mean, that is insane. And I think more and more as people are being trained to basically, you know, open up their social media pages and be shown what they're actively interested in, either from you know a content perspective or now obviously a commerce perspective now that Instagram are doing a hard shift into e-com as TikTok will as well you know as YouTube yeah. is also doing too we need to show people stuff that they're actively interested in they give a shit about and I think that means embracing fragmentation and making content and communications for more than one audience and you might sort of say yeah but we've got we've got a Gen Z audience we've got a millennial audience that's not an audience that is an age group and that's not necessarily, you know, creating for, for interest. And I think, you know, what Peloton yeah. are doing, which is super interesting and Food52 and BuzzFeed as well, is they are recognizing that there are kind of miniature fandoms popping up, you know, within their overall um, set of audience. So Peloton, they have kind of superstar um, trainers, which people love. So they've got really charismatic personalities. Um, they might have phrases, they might have fashion items that they wear, they might have, you know, types of um, music that they play versus other ones. So, you know, one might be super into Elvis remixes and actually, weirdly, um, <laughs> Peloton are now releasing their own um, IP, so their own kind of remixes of Elvis that you can't hear anywhere else. You can only hear it on the Peloton uh, when you're cycling, which is really smart. But they're kind of allowing these miniature communities to pop up around their trainer talent um, and sort of really diving deep into those so they've got their own merch um, you know they've got their own tone all of that kind of stuff and people feel a sense of belonging because they are seeing that trainer as their kind of peloton deity and they're not really responding to peloton necessarily as a brand they're responding one level down in terms of all of the trainer content and food 52 are doing exactly the same thing so food 52 have got um, huge following on kind of youtube and instagram and that kind of stuff but again it's not about Food 52 as a brand. It's about Food 52 as all of the different chefs and hosts that they've got. And they've got a myriad different ones. So they've got the kind of matronly one, you know, who's cooking in her kind of country kitchen. They've got the kind of uh, the bro one, for example, that's focused on kind of meat and hacking stuff. And, um, you know, they've got so many different, they've got vegan ones. And again, people are attracted to their tribe and, you know, what they're interested in and that person that they then feel some sort of connection to becomes the brand for them. So it's Food52 plus talent, which is your fandom as opposed to Food52. You know, for example, with Adidas, they're leaning heavily into different subsets of fandoms as well and actually building for different types of audiences. So, um, you know, they've got a fantastic innovation team in Portland, which is headed by a woman called Michelle Goad, um, who I think is just a genius. And she's just released NBG, which is nothing but gold. 
and it's essentially a kind of mish, mishmash of, of TikTok, um, live streaming commerce, network, entertaining, all of that stuff in an app specifically built for young women who are into streetwear and who are into kind of beauty and fashion and style. And that is a very small subset that they're gonna be building for um, moving forward. Doesn't mean they're not building for young football fans. Doesn't mean they're not building for, um, you know, basketball, for example. So they've yeah. just brought on the designer um, who is the founder of Fear of God, which is a super you know, successful streetwear label. And he's gonna be building this new vision for basketball. So again, they're embracing the niches. They're embracing having these verticals that they can really build a you know a feel around and a tone around and a style around and they can actually pull people who are interested in that fandom or interested in that community or that vertical in without having to do the mass appeal because mass appeal just isn't working anymore and i think the more we we wake up to yeah. that and the more we start realizing that people have these really deep interests and we need to be designing for them the better it's going to be and yes it's more work um, and yes, it means we've got to go deeper on our demographics and our audiences to really understand them as opposed to, you know, women aged 35 to 55, which is just fucking lazy, to be <laughs> honest. Um, and, we need to, and we need to design for them and we really need to kind of get into it. And that, for me, is the future of where brands really need to go. Um, and I think a lot of people are digging their heels in because it is difficult yeah. and it's an unknown and they haven't done it before and so they're going oh this this whole kind of vertical community fandom -y thing is such a fad it's like all right well you want to keep your head in the yeah. sand you go for it yeah who do you think like what does owns that in the company like do you think it directly comes from the insight team like you're saying how it's like quite hard work yeah um is this like one single owner or well, like I mean, department the, the one... of it no, I don't think so. The one single owner would be the CMO, obviously, for which yeah. you know everything falls under. Yeah. But I think underneath that, you need to have your vertical teams and your vertical teams need to be multidisciplinary. So, you know, if you think about mm. Adidas, for example, they've been in verticals for years. Um, so, you know, I, I started working with them properly about 10 years ago and they were already in verticals. So they had, you know, football, they had tennis, they had running, they had, um, you know, basketball. They were already segmented and they already had teams in the verticals. And within those teams, you've got designers, you've got marketing, you've got e-com experts. And then they had horizontal teams. So, you know, CRM experts, which would have kind of based on their skill set, but they could go across the verticals. So they were a properly matrixed organization. Um, now they're going even deeper. So it's not necessarily just um, based on the sport in terms of, you know, basketball, football, that kind of stuff. But they are building for, you know, attitudes. They're building for style. Um, you know, for example, they were one of the first ones to pioneer this idea of bringing in, um, you know, celebrities and creators to create sub-brands just for them based on their communities and their audiences with Yeezy, with Pharrell Williams, for example, Nike have just done it with Drake, you know, basically creating an, an entire label just for Drake called Nocta, um, which is for his audience. And, you know, essentially looking at, you know, how they would want to have a brand created for them, which is around Drake's persona and streetwear and his belief system. So it's not a kind of performance Nike run faster thing. It's a fundamentally different offering. And I think it's about figuring out what are your key verticals in terms of interest areas that you can really build for for your audience and then how do you start to structure your organization around that and I don't necessarily think they should be siloed from one another or isolated I think having that kind of cross um, information cross insight is is super duper interesting and also really really valuable 
but you need to be designing specifically for them. So how you do that is kind of up to you. But I do think the, the Adidas model is a really interesting one. That's a really interesting um, about brands in general. I think that leads really well to our question three. Um, when it comes to entertainment franchises in particular, um, is it best to just aim to be as popular as they can for the masses, um, like we asked about brands, or more niche to reflect well on the premium premiumness of what they want their brand to be associated with in the long term, or does this depend on you know the the, the program or or the entertainment franchise? Totally depends. I mean, everybody's yeah. got totally different goals. I mean, you look at the Crown versus Rick and Morty, you know that they're, they're fundamentally <laughs> yeah. different. Um, and I also think, you know, they're fundamentally different, so you you would monetize them differently. So if you've got something like um, The Crown, for example, and that is going to be more mass produced, it's going to be more mainstream in terms of its audience, it's also potentially going to be more shallow in its level of engagement with its audiences. So people are going to watch it. They might not want to go and buy merch, you know, related to The Crown, for example, in terms of... Um, yeah fashion items, although some of them definitely have with you the black sheep jumper that was done by rowing blazers and, and that kind of stuff, but that wasn't attached to the crown. That was just a really smart move on their part. Um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, it, it would be less shallow, it would be more shallow engagement, whereas you've got a Rick and Morty and the Rick and Morty fandom are properly fanatical. They absolutely bloody love it. So they will buy anything to do with Rick and Morty. I mean, you've had um, the most recent season, I think they did a drop, which was, um, Pickle Rick Seltzer. So basically, um, you know, they did that collaboration. They did the whole Szechuan sauce thing, obviously with McDonald's and bringing that kind of sauce back. And, you know, the merch drops that they do are just hilarious and insane. And people just love it so much they can't get enough of it. So again, monetization is different. So if you've got a deep fandom who are more niche, um, they will probably spend a hell of a lot more with your franchise in a number of different directions. Whereas if you've got a more broad one, your monetization strategy is different because it's about reach, um, you know, and it's about basically mass appeal in terms of numbers. So subscriber numbers from a Netflix perspective, but you're less bothered if they go deeper and spend money in different ways in terms of, you know, merch and other forms of monetization. So mm -hmm. it, it's really comparing, you know, apples and oranges. They're, they're fundamentally different things. I don't think that you would look at it yeah. and go, do we want to be premium and mass or do we want to be niche and not so i think it's just it's yeah. so unbelievable. when you talk different. about like niche deep niche fandoms and yeah. like rick and morty it reminds me like more of gaming in a way like there's yeah. more of a parallel between those two like something like fortnite um where you like track the fandom and like um release things that they're interested in rather than like perhaps those two are more comparable than comparing it to something like the crown yeah, I think, you know, Fortnite, again, I wouldn't call that niche um, anymore. Yeah, and no. I wouldn't call Overwatch or PUBG a niche. I think they're, they're gigantic, you know, communities. But within them, there are niches um, yeah. in terms of, you know, what people are interested in. And I do think it's about really digging into the data, really digging into the culture, um, you know, going deep on Reddit threads and really figuring out what people are into. And I've been doing that recently, so I'm, I'm working at the moment. Um, with a gaming studio in LA, which are going to be releasing a big new IP in 2022. And we've done it exactly that way. We've been looking at fandoms and initially we could have come out and said, you know, this game is all about X, buy it. Um, but actually what you're, what you're doing is you're making it too generic. You're making it too bland. And instead we really went deep on the game and we read all the backstory, we read all the lore that they created and we went, right, okay, we think there are six different fandoms that we could attract into this new franchise. And they are all very, very different from one another. So what we're going to do is we're going to identify 
the needs and motivations and interest levels of each of these different fandoms in isolation from one another. And we're going to create communications properties or communications concepts that are individual to those fandoms. So rather than having one overarching campaign for this new game, we're going to have six. And that's all going to ladder up to kind of one bigger idea, but we're going to go six ways in as opposed to one way in. And that for me is super exciting and it's kind of where it should be. And again, as I said, it's more work, um, but it's also potentially way more effective. And those fans, especially, you know, gaming fans, I've got a massive bullshit filter um, and it takes a lot to kind of motivate them and get them interested. But if we create something that is specifically for them, designed for them, um, based on, you know, what they're interested in, based on the aspect of the game that they're going to respond best to, you can bet that they're actually going to go, wow, these guys actually put some fucking effort in and I'm going to put some time into this and this is going to be great. And that's what we're looking to do. And it is about really segmenting and, and creating, as I said, for each of those individual groups, as opposed to doing the lazy campaign generic thing, which I think is is kind of dying a, a rapid death at the moment. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I think we've given some really good pointers for both, you know, general brands, but also entertainment franchises for, the, you know, the strategists among us. Mm. I think it helps to frame it as like niche versus like mass as well. Um, like yeah. when, when we're like naming different entertainment franchises or TV shows, that's mm. something that I like remember now because I think I wasn't I, w- I wouldn't like map it out in my head like that, but I think that's super useful. Yeah, and I think on, on the niche point, I think maybe that's the wrong word in some cases, because sometimes when you go to clients and you go, we're going to go after this niche, they're going to go, oh, well, I don't want to spend... Yeah, it's too yeah. niche. I don't want to spend money on that because the commercial returns are not going to be great. But actually, if you go back yeah. to them and go, right, we've got eight niches um, who have all got slightly different interest areas, but if you add those niches up, you know, it's 20 million people, that looks very, very different. So I think when you're saying niche you also need to put figures behind it so that the clients don't dismiss it really quickly and kind of go oh no I don't want to go after niches I want to reach as many people as possible it's not about pure reach it's about it's about engagement you know it's about like do they give a shit or are they just going to go yeah pre-roll done I need to click skip video as quickly as possible if that's you know obviously the media that you're buying but what you're looking for is you're looking for people to actually spend time with you and if you want them to spend time with you you need to put some effort in and you need to create, you know, something that's actually going to be interesting to them as opposed to doing a kind of big, um, as I said, the, the generic sort of campaigns with the one-liners that don't mean anything to anyone. And that's kind of where I think it gets it gets really interesting in terms of new models, new ways of thinking, um, and actually kind of adding those niches together to come up with this big scaled audience, but treating it differently. So what we always do... Um with every guest thinking about the creative brief or any kind of brief in mind what is like the main thing if someone just skipped to the right at the end of this episode but wanted to know their main main pointer for what to put in a creative brief if they're working on you know a brand that has a bit of fandom to work with like what should they do please don't put women aged 35 to 55 in your creative brief (laughs) ever um think about interests and motivations and map them out that's the key thing for me so you know if you're talking to mums um you know and if you've got a particular product think about the different areas that they might be interested in and really do some do some research go on mumsnet see what they're talking about um you know on that front see if you know you've got some mums that might care about um safety for example you've got others that might care about you know how they educate their child whatever 
but really start to think about how you can design. And I think, you know, from a mama's perspective, I wouldn't call them fandoms, but they're interest groups. So think about the different ways that yeah. you can design for them. But if you are doing something more in the entertainment world, or if, or if you are doing something that actually does have kind of more fandoms to it, take the time to dive into wherever those fandoms are bubbling up or wherever they're existing and get to know them. You know, don't try and yeah. do mass. Don't try and make them flat when they are so multifaceted and it's the multifaceted aspect that is gonna make it the most exciting work that you could do that's um it's, it's almost like you um what you listened to our first episode on gen <laughs> z it was literally the reason why we created this podcast because we were so sick of brief saying you know we need gen to z. um gen z yeah, american sites so annoying but thank you so much though thank We've you learned Zoe. so so much absolutely and sure love everyone that will yeah who listens to this Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for having Speak me. Soon. All right, thank you.